0: The Incomparable, number 482, October 2019.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing an excellent film from 1992, directed by Phil Alden Robinson, which I think this was maybe his movie after Field of Dreams, or was there another one in there? I don't know. Anyway, it is... Sneakers, uh, a movie with perhaps uh, maybe the best cast in a movie ever. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's a great movie. And if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it and then listen to this episode. Let me introduce my panel of wonderful people here to talk about sneakers. Uh, Casey Liss returns to the program because I made a promise that if we ever talked about sneakers like The Hunt for Red October, we would have to have Casey on the show. Hi, Casey.
0: Hello. I appreciate you slumming it with me for this one.
1: I am happy to have you here. Wouldn't do it without you. Wouldn't do it without you. Dan Morin, similarly, I uh, I made a pact that if we ever did sneakers on the Incomparable, we would include him. And uh, Dan, I live up to uh, my uh, my side of the bargain. I'm not going to like go out for pizza and never come back. You're here. Jason, <laughs> Jason, personally,
2: I'm in it for the money. I don't care if you go to jail.
1: And Eric Ensign is also here. I don't know if you have a long history with sneakers. You just said you'd like to be on this episode, and so you're here.
3: I went out for pizza, then I went to Canada. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. It That's, works on so many levels. The, the story checks <laughs> out, actually. <laughs> and John Syracuse is also here. Hi, John.
4: I'm happy to be back on A Problematic Hen, or The Incomparable, which oh, is one of the
2: best well Oh, well oh, Well wow. done. Deep, deep. It's nice.
1: all about the anagrams. That's the secret of everything. Um, sneakers, yes. Yeah, sneakers. Phil Alden Robinson I, again had a big hit with uh, with the, the the old Field of Dreams in 1989, and his next credited movie as a screenwriter and director, I believe was sneakers and then he went on to make many other movies not that many
2: jason he made he made five he's only directed five features and if two of your five are sneakers and field of dreams that's pretty good
1: (laughs) he had a he had a big hit with field of dreams and then then there was this which is a humorous uh spy caper double cross thing (laughs) <laughs> you know what is it it's a movie that they don't here's what, i don't know what kind of movie this is here's what i'll say about sneakers it's a kind of movie that there aren't enough of whatever
2: this is yes. here mm-hmm. here i was thinking as well i don't think they make these kinds of movies anymore it seems like
1: did they ever i mean i i had this thought while watching this movie this time um and we'll get into all of this but like this is a kind of movie i'd love to see more of uh or tv shows i know there are some tv shows that are a little bit kind of a, a lighter kind of they're a heist uh, or a caper and and there's and there's or spies but it's also got a lighter tone but like i kind of can't get enough of this i'm um, also watching robert redford in this and thinking to myself wow robert redford he's uh he's great <laughs> He's, yeah, he really he's, is. He's great. And and I thought about some of his, especially 70s movies that are of mm-hmm. a similar tone and thought, yeah. Three Days of the Condor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, it's
2: funny because the next big movie I remember seeing him after that, or like more re, most recently is, of course, like Winter Soldier, in which it's unfortunate because he's so likable and yet he's a bad guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you're like, I really want to be on yeah. Robert Redford's side here. <laughs> I know. We all have his spy craft and all that, but it turns out not That's so right. much. And and just an amazing rest of the cast. As to uh, you know, every every character you turn around, and you're like, oh my god, it's and it, whether it's Ben Kingsley, Sydney Poitier, River Phoenix, of course, David Strathairn is in this. Um, Mary McDonald as the only woman in the movie, the girl. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is this is
3: back in the days when being a, a girl was like a character type. Yeah. Like in D&D, yeah, you know, you got your elf, you got your dwarf, you got your girl.
1: Yeah, she's good. She's she's mm-hmm. she's good. But there are several moments. There's even dialogue that's sort of like. There are other women in this world, but we're not going to show them to you like it's yeah. literally
3: like we get were... to see a wife and a daughter, and they have maybe like two three lines, lines between yeah. Them.
0: Like, yeah that's
1: all three kinds of women, right <laughs> 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 John all right, um before we get going, does anybody have an opening statement i think uh I suspect ooh, ooh. yeah John, doing, John, John please yes, okay, uh you're actually
4: uh. Both you and Dan already touched on this, actually. The, my opening statement is brief, and and it begins with, uh, by saying that, like real genius... Hold on, Jason. Oh, God. On, <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm, I'm leaving. Please, don't. Prepare. Please Prepare. don't. Please don't,
0: John. Don't ruin well, this for like me, Dad. Like real
4: genius, oh, no. this is the kind of movie that we don't see a lot of and that I really enjoy. Um, you touched on some of the things that make it... Uh, Rare, a, a rare example of a movie, but the, the the genre that I place it in or the type of movie that I, uh, you know, file this under that I think we need more of is the kind of movie where being smart is good and the heroes are heroes because they're smart. I don't know how, mm-hmm. how what you would call that movie, but Real Genius Falls in that category as well. It's not like there are heroes and the heroes contain one smart guy, speaking of types, and mm-hmm. the smart guy is helpful during certain pivotal scenes but in general the heroes are the heroes they just happen to have a smart guy an entire movie where all the heroes are only heroes because they are smart and being smart is never shown to be a bad thing and is only shown to be the solution to all the world's problems um, and as a young nerd i love this type of movie they tend not to make it that much anymore even when they make kind of like a hackersy kind of movie they will they will make a squad where there is the one smart person and then everyone else is like the cool guy, the handsome guy, the tough guy, the girl, you know. Uh, Movies like this where whatever they're doing, but usually, okay, granted, they're usually hacking or heisting or shooting lasers into popcorn, you know, the usual things you see smart people doing. Um, They don't make many movies like this, and so we have to treasure the ones we have, and Sneakers is one of those movies. Um, And the second thing I'll say about this is you know, it's, it's from the 90s. Now that I'm an old man to look on it, I had to go look at the IMDb page to see what year it was made because it felt kind of like the 80s. It's early 90s or whatever, but it is painfully simplified and sort of of its time mm-hmm. right down to the anagram opening titles where the layperson's understanding of codes and encryption is like, well, you can rearrange letters and words. You understand that <laughs> from the jumble <laughs> in the paper, right? Not Never has that been any form of anything. It's just like what we have to communicate so it's very very simplified right um, and we'll talk about all instances of that throughout the movie as we go through it but it's also amazingly prescient in gigantic ways mm-hmm. that the people who made this yes. movie could not have possibly imagined right like for all the paranoia and over-the-top phrasing they have in the modern day you watch this movie and you're like no they pretty much nailed it yeah, yeah that's yep. totally gonna happen in fact we're mm-hmm. living in it now which mm-hmm. is both terrifying and fascinating
1: Yep, yeah, for sure. I, I would say this is a and, and this may lead into Dan, who also I believe has an opening statement. Um, True. It's a movie about solving puzzles. And so the one thing I'll give the anagram thing is that it's a simple puzzle. And in the end, the uh, characters in this movie are also trying to solve puzzles um and uh, uh another note before i guess this is sort of like my own opening statement but i'm the host <laughs> i get to say whatever the heck i want um this this holds something in common with the hunt for red october which we did with casey a while ago which is mm-hmm. it, very james much, Earl jones. it very much it very much james <Earl> jones sure <laughs> uh, playing who knows the same character maybe um yeah. it is a movie that is set after the fall of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. that needs to have its screenplay amended, essentially, to explain why they can still have Cold War spy tension even though the soviet union has fallen apart and they have to do it in dialogue because they really need to explain either this happened before that or oh no no there's still a problem and i i I thought that was an interesting thing i didn't realize these two movies had in common which is the having to explain that just because the soviet union fell doesn't mean that we still don't have spies so just watch the movie okay and i thought that was pretty funny
2: (laughs) with a few exceptions that we'll discuss i'm sure in there and which you already touched upon i think largely with the fact that mary mcdonald's the only female male character setting aside those those quibbles um i think this is an almost perfect movie for me uh i i I really think that this movie hits me perfectly and as we discussed it's not a movie that gets made before and i think part of that for me is also it does such a deft job moving back and forth between lighthearted comedy and actual like tension filled drama, right? Like it actually edges into the darker end of the spectrum at a few points, which I think is is pretty hard to do and keep everything also feeling fun. It makes it feel like there are stakes. Um, I think I first saw this movie, I think it must have been the summer after it came out. And that was because I went to this camp where they had a variety of different classes you could take. And one of them was an electronics lab. And I took electronics lab. And we did like some, you know, building little things on breadboards and stuff like that. And one day when the, you know, teacher wasn't there, I think he was there. But we were like, we didn't have anything to do that day. So he's just like, oh, I'm going to show you this movie. And so I saw that movie at you know the age of 13 or whatever it was like this movie is great uh and i and have watched it many 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 times since then and introduced a number of other people to it including it was the movie i made my wife watch on our second date uh, and she's still with me so you know that works out <laughs> um But so much of this movie is seared into my memory. And like you said, pretty much everybody in it is somebody. Uh, Stephen Toblowski, Eddie Jones and Timothy Busfield. I mean, come on. Like, it's just everybody is somebody. And and there's so much in here that's well done and so many things in terms of the writing that I think are just so memorable.
1: You didn't even mention brilliant mathematician Donald Logue. (laughs) Donald yep. He's on my. He's in yeah. my notes. He is totally <laughs> he's totally he's in my so notes. So young and so thin. I know.
2: So skinny. Yeah. Uh, I. But I think for me, this is one of. This is a top ten movie for me. Easy, and it's a movie like Jason said. I have a love of puzzles, and this flirts with that a little bit. Uh, obviously, I think you know we'll probably talk a little bit about the technology and the places, things that gets right and things that gets wrong. But even the things that gets wrong, I think it, generally speaking, manages to do a decent job of sort of putting it in a way that people can understand uh, while remaining faithful to the core of the truth, even if it doesn't do it quite right. But yeah, I I wish they made more moves like this. And literally almost every book I have ever written strives to take something away from this movie, if possible, to recreate (laughs) that tone in some way. And I think that is kind of my life's quest is to just (laughs) make something that is tonally feels like this movie.
4: Mm -hmm. You should put Robert Redford
2: in your books. Uh, what makes you think he isn't <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, i wanted to uh just a plus one what uh what dan said a minute ago for me this movie is is basically perfect and you know in my favorite music albums there's always at least one song that i find to be a snooze or i just don't really care for and as i was re-watching this earlier today there is nothing in this movie that i'm actively like oh god this part you know the the scene with the uh, trying to get the uh, Warner Brandis to say all the correct words at the weird, you know, karaoke bar. That that was <laughs> as close as I came to, ugh, but still didn't quite get me into the, oh gosh, here we go again part. Uh, I, I thought this one was I, I love this movie from top to bottom, from front to back. And the other thing that I think I really have come to appreciate about it as I'm approaching old man status <laughs> with every uh, passing day is that it feels like it's a movie of a time But not in the like gross way. It feels appropriate that, okay, this was an early 90s movie and that's fine. It's not one of those that it's like, oh, God, you know, there's flip phones everywhere and they're throwing like early 90s technology in our faces and it just feels gross, even though they are throwing early 90s technology in our faces (laughs) the entire time. Somehow, for me, it it just works and it's a movie of a time and that's fine, as opposed to, oh, yeah, it's that early 90s weirdo movie.
3: Yeah, somehow it's of its time, but it doesn't feel dated in the way that a lot of movies feel dated. That's very well Mm -hmm. put. Very Mm -hmm.
0: well put. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
3: I can't even remember the first time I saw Sneakers i know i have seen it many times but it's one of those movies unlike dan where like it's this perfect movie that he loves so much and tries to put in his books i almost entirely forget about it when i'm not watching it and then when somebody says something about sneakers i'm like oh my god that movie that amazing movie i need to go watch it again and then i will go watch it again and it's just like it's like it's 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 a sneaky movie sneakers is (laughs) because it just sneaks away um but every time i think about it with, of course, the exception of poor Mary McDonnell being the only lady, um it's it's one of my one of my favorites because, yeah, I, I love a good heist. I love characters that bounce off of each other in interesting ways and we get a bunch of that in this um but characters who i can also like all of them simultaneously so they're not bouncing off of each other because some of them are jerks and some of them aren't i like everybody and i like the way that they interact with each other so it is uh, it's just a, a feast from beginning to end because you also then have the the puzzles and and the heists and the you'll you won't know who to trust and all that kind of stuff it's it's just good times
2: it's one of the tricky movies that slots in that situation between they should never mess with it and also why wasn't why didn't this turn into the sneaker cinematic
1: universe so we have so much of it? It's
4: like yes. I can't decide which I want more. Well that, that here, idea
1: here. of also I mean this goes back to something that John said about how it's, you know, smart people working together and and even a little like real genius. I get what he's saying because what's happening here is that there's a team. And they're functioning as a team, and even when the team is pushing one another's buttons, it's generally Dan Aykroyd saying crazy things. <laughs> um, and and uh, crazy
4: who could ever hold beliefs like that? And you know, having a character like this in a movie is so unrealistic. Oh God in so many ways this movie was telling us our future that we didn't want to hear (laughs) and
1: City Point just rolls his eyes at the whole thing but Mm -hmm. uh, the fact is they do work as a team and like a I'd actually say a little bit like a superhero movie everybody's got their thing that they're good at but they all work together to solve problems and uh, and and sometimes they're put in positions that are difficult but they just kind of muddle through as they need to and uh, I like that about it too that these are people who you know they generally get along and they sort of fill in the weak spots of one another and form this team and when you get uh, Mary Mary McDonald coming in um, there's a little bit of protective that everybody is but also a little bit of like knowing about why um, why uh, Bishop is uh, so problematic and and like it's like a family kind of thing and 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 then and then she Mm -hmm. basically becomes part of the group and i I like that dynamic a lot too the the um i'll throw out it's also like a star trek movie a little bit right where there's a team of of Uh, people and they all have their expertise and you get the movie gives them all something to do and i like that i like that we get to see them uh even though they only get their little moments to shine they all get that moment i think that's a good thing about it too Okay, let me take a break. And we'll get back to sneakers in a moment. I want to tell you about our first sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Pingdom. Pingdom is wonderful because they keep your website and all the websites that you love online. Pingdom monitors your site so you don't have to and gives you real time feedback. So you know exactly what's going on at all times. The internet is great. But stuff breaks because computers suck. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. while wow. more than 400,000 outages every day. That's a lot of computers malfunctioning because they hate us. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company, you need alerts about any critical website issues. Pingdom will let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of an outage. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a site of any kind, you need Pingdom. I use it for the incomparable, for six colors, absolutely, and that means that I know what is going on at any time. Pingdom has a no-fuss approach to getting started all they need is the URL of the site you want to monitor. That's it. They can take care of everything else. Go to pingdom.com Snell right now for a 14-day free trial. No credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code Snell at checkout, and you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, I guess we should talk about it in a little more detail. Um, I, I'll, I'll run through the plot a little bit, just because that'll give us an opportunity to step off where we need to and talk about aspects of it. Um, the movie begins with a flashback to uh like the late 60s early 70s where there are two students who are uh hacking into computer networks and doing things to like transfer money from bad people to good people essentially um, and one of these people who is recognizably supposed to be if you know that it's going to be robert redford you're like oh this is okay. who robert redford will a, a, be
4: a, a, another throwback different actors for you these use different true. actors yeah, right. for young people
1: <laughs> you believe that <laughs> i said to lauren as we were watching this they totally just de-aged this scene now if they did it today oh yeah yeah, and the
2: guy who plays young robert redford does a nice job of capturing several of his mannerisms i think
4: which is pretty good underneath the giant hair pieces he's wearing oh yeah
1: sure it's (laughs) fine i was gonna say including most importantly blonde and with a mustache yeah Yeah. (laughs) there's a moment that in hindsight is actually kind of funny which is that um marty goes out to get uh pizza and that is, and he's like in the van and the, and the lights from the, the cop cars all start to light up the, on the outside of the van. And he goes out and, 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 and goes underneath the, uh, the window, which I think is like a, a mistake, like maybe you should be out of there, but at least he goes back. Mm-hmm. And then his friend also, rather than being like, you better get out of here, just shouts his name. <laughs> so like there there's a go. guy down there. And kicks the window out. Accomplice, Marty. As
2: he's uh, dragged away by the computer police
4: yes you know. exactly <laughs> well, right he, he has to hit the the refrain that we're going to hear throughout
1: this movie let's everyone Maddie. do it together she, Maddie. 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 yep that's exactly exactly right and that and and but that's it now uh we see we see uh martin bishop and it's robert redford and uh, we're in the present day of of you know 1992
2: the economics of this first scene in the not the the one right after the flashback are incredible in that i think does this movie does a fantastic job of literally explaining all the characters to you in the first three minutes Mm -hmm. that you meet them right like you've got a conspiracy theorist you've got a straight-laced man you've got a cocky kid you've got a blind guy and you've got robert redford right it's like Mm -hmm. within the first conversation that they have you all immediately know who all of these characters are and it's very clear and i think that's a true like a testament to the the screenwriting here is it just
4: sort of like knocks him out and that's who those characters are for the rest of the movie. And there's one divergence from my uh my slotting this into the smart people doing things, and that is Robert Redford, who A may be too handsome to be smart. I'm mm-hmm. I'm willing <laughs> I'm willing to, <laughs> to believe that may Fine. actually be a problem. But B, like so you named all the people. Robert Redford is the leader. He's our lead in the movie. Yes. He is the leader of the group. He is ostensibly smart because we see him in the beginning, you know, hacking into whatever they were doing with his friend. But during the course of the movie, he is like the figurehead on the prow of the ship breaking the waves for the rest of the team with his he's, very
0: He's very, the manager, face. John. <laughs> <laughs>
2: he, I mean he does stuff
4: though. He's the one who has to do the slow walking later, and yeah. he has he has good ideas and stuff. But he stares at the Scrabble
1: board and realizes that C Tech yeah, astronomy uh, yeah, is a... Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, like, an I'm anti-ground. not saying he's
4: I'm not saying he's a dummy, but I feel like he is given the least, surprisingly for the lead. He is his team is the one that gets to solve most of the cool problems where you go aha, and he mostly just gets to. Be Robert Redford.
3: He's not specialized. I think everybody else is specialized, and he is more of a jack of all trades. He in... specialized
4: in handsomeness and I the mean, leader. he's he yeah. the
3: leader. Well,
0: <laughs> he's so, like he's like Han-
4: he's like Hannibal on the A Team. He's got the plan. You only mm-hmm. have a certain number of points to distribute in your character, and he put it all in <laughs> handsomeness. And then he's, he's, got he's definitely got no
2: dexterity because every time I know it's coming, but the way he trips over the counter in like the first scene, yeah. oh yeah, I laugh every stuntman, time. Ball. I laugh every single time. It's so well done. I
3: think he put a lot of points in charisma as well because he's not yeah just.
1: Handsome. He. Well, I don't know. I don't know what
4: that corresponds to. Handsomeness in, uh, the in charisma. This that would be charisma. Game. Well, it's
1: yeah. still charisma. I agree, Dan. This is a very economical bit of screenwriting. Where what we're seeing, also, um, I'm going to call back another Star Trek movie. It is in the grand tradition of something like Star Trek 2, A. Thing that isn't what you think you're seeing. It is a a way to take everybody out for mm-hmm. a spin and put them in jeopardy immediately. And then there's a reveal like, oh, this was just a test. But you know what? It doesn't matter that it was a test, and you're led to believe that because we see the hacking in the beginning. Like, oh, well, he's still up to no good, and that's not actually quite what's right. going on here. It turns out they're security consultants, and as somebody says to him, uh, "You mean they pay you?" To- <laughs> To what it, whatever that line is, they pay. They People pay. pay you to break into their places to prove that nobody can break into their places. He says, "Yeah, that's basically it, and uh and that's how we meet this team. So it, it's a really useful way of doing that." The secretary, another
4: another type of female, apparently, yeah. to <laughs> there, says to him, "They pay you for this, and he, and her line is doesn't pay very well. Oh, yeah. it's so good. It's a living, not a very good one." It tells you exactly what kind of movie this is going Mm -hmm. to be. It's going to be the kind of movie that has a dim view of the society we've built for ourselves, right? (laughs) Well, not only that, but you also have the
2: scrappy... These people are not... Uh, well off their scrappy underdogs right They
4: could be if they were morally compromised but they're not so we know they're the good guys but the good guys are getting screwed by the man despite the fact that they have the skills to make things secure and they're just consultants and
1: right they steal millions of dollars to prove and give it back and then they give it back and get paid thousands of dollars and yeah we don't know what the check was
4: but it looks disappointing and they you know i mean i guess that loft probably once that neighborhood gets gentrified probably worth a lot but right now (laughs) in the 90s it's not worth a lot
0: you know, I have to say, uh, building on what Jason brought up, there were, uh, I think, three different occurrences, or maybe at least a couple of occurrences, uh, where I noticed that even though I've seen the movie a gazillion times, it was exactly what you said, Jason. Where you're, you're as an audience, you know, member, you're led to believe something, but it, the reveal is that it's something else. So, like when Robert Redford approaches the cop in the bank, before you realize that they're mm-hmm. like white hat or whatever it is, you know, that they're, they're they're good hackers, uh, and you're like, oh god, oh god, oh god, what's going to happen? And then he walks right by, and everything's fine, and it turns. Turns out, you know, they're doing this because the bank asked them to. Uh, later on, when Liz is playing the piano, except it's not her, it's yes. her student that was hidden behind like the the part of the piano or whatever. And then um, my favorite of all, and this is jumping way ahead, is when he gets all the instructions from Creese about how to break through the, <laughs> um, the, the numeric lock. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. and then he just kicks the door down yeah give it a shot so good and, uh, indiana
1: jones did it but i'll give it to him and you know that it's coming and it's still just it's still exactly areas. exactly yeah. and i also, itself,
0: to, to build on what erica had said earlier when she appropriately phrased the bumbling mess i was trying to say the film doesn't seem dated because i think in some small ways because we never see a dollar amount on that check because if that said you know I don't know, $10,000 in 1992 that was a tremendous amount of money. Today it's still a lot of money, but it's you know it's it's a very different amount of money today than it was, you know, 30 years ago. And I think little touches like that where we don't actually see a dollar amount help me at least to stay in the movie rather than being like ha Oh, 10 grand. Yeah, well, they, does, they
1: do
2: later tell them that they're paying them well, $175,000 for this. Yeah. And
1: everyone's really excited about that. And I'm like, that will, die. <laughs> in- <laughs> they live in San Francisco? <laughs> that will get you nothing. Yeah, cut, cut six different ways. And they're like, oh yeah. boy, that's going to be What are you going to do with your amazing. share? I'm going to pay off my student debt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is, uh, it is set in San Francisco. I was amused at at several points by some of the San Francisco stuff. Uh, There is a scene later that's set in a place that I have, where I have stood, and I I, I realize I need to take uh, Casey and Dan there sometime when they're in San Francisco (laughs) so that we can reenact that moment. Could you throw me and Casey in the trunk of a car and drive us over a bridge? <laughs> so they have exposed this bank's weaknesses and they've gotten their check that is not fulfilling. And uh then they're approached, uh Marty is approached by these two guys from the NSA. It's Timothy Busfield and the guy who is the dad on Lois and Clark, the new Eddie, Eddie Jones, yeah. Also
2: these also the uh aviating clown in the Rocketeer uh, yeah. who yep. has to get rescued by the Rocketeer.
1: Yep. So uh they they need to get a uh a a goodie uh, a, a, a a magical box invented by a mathematician at uh, UC Berkeley uh, who, uh, you know, Tech Astronomy is putting this together and it's apparently going to let the Russians spy on American uh, conversations. And this is a a very interesting conversation because it first is going one way, which is, we need your help. And and Marty's very much like, well, I'm not really interested in doing that. I, I don't work for governments, he says at one point, which is a, a good line that I enjoy. And then they point out that they actually know who he really is and that he's been working under an alias and his name is not actually Bishop. And he's the, uh, he's the guy who went out for pizza and didn't come back when his friend went to jail and killed himself and all of that. And therefore, uh, we can make... You're we can expunge the record or make it all go away, but they're basically saying you have to do this job for us or we'll just arrest you for those crimes from 1969.
2: This scene does a few things and it doesn't very well. One, it does the rundown of who all our characters are at this point yep. and gives all our backgrounds uh, and is very... Uh, succinct in doing that, and it ends with that really lovely shot about like Martin Bishop. He doesn't seem to have a past in the turnover mm, of the the, the empty, empty folder.
1: folder. Yeah, yeah,
2: which is really good. And there's so many. I just want to comment. One of the things is, that sticks with me in this movie is just so much line deliveries. There are so many line deliveries that are so good. Like at the point where Timothy Busfield's like we're the good guys. And, and Robert Redford says, gee, I can't tell you what a relief that is. <laughs>
0: <dick."> <laughs> yeah. I also loved them, them going back and forth between, Oh no, that's the CIA. No, that's right. the NSA. <laughs> you know, that, that's got uh, their FBI.
2: Turf. Like you said, sets up the stakes really well. Like this is, we are at this point, I, I kept checking my clock a bunch of times cause I was curious, like how far you're in. And this is another sort of screenwriting standby is 15 minutes in you got your hook. And which is basically spot on at this point. Like, this is our 15-minute point. We've realized uh, Martin's got to do this job or else he is in a lot of trouble, right? And it's punctuated with that lovely, again, a great line delivery by Timothy Busfield, Mr. Bryce, as he hands him the, the wanted note, right? And it's just, yep. all right, we're on the hook. And at this
1: point, you know, we go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good because then they're reluctant. They're not doing this because they want to or because of the money. They're doing it because he's been caught. And and you get the sense that even though this turns out not to be true, that they know who he is and they've been waiting to basically call this in because they need him to do a job and they know that they've got this leverage over him. So this is their opportunity to do it. So they go to his lecture at Berkeley. He brings along Mary McDonnell as Liz his ex-girlfriend there's some uh nice dialogue I-, I think at this point about um about like what is it? it like she doesn't she's like i'm not getting back together with you and all that like i like their relationship because it's cordial while also being very clear that something kind of came apart there there's affection and yet there's also this sort of like yeah but i'm not gonna mm-hmm. let you pull me into your nonsense anymore which i think is yeah. a yeah and right, he's yeah
3: there are a number of ways that this movie feels undated, and one of them is that he is completely unstalkerish. Like he actually asks her, "Can I call you?" And it just that blew my mind because it just doesn't <laughs> seem like the kind of thing that a movie this old uh, would would have one of its main, you know, its hunky male character doing. So I, I just really appreciated the way that that yes, they had this back and forth, and yeah, you're sort of. Uh, it, it, he he still likes her and he wants to get back together even if he's not going to admit it out loud and she knows it but it's there's nothing icky about it like it never made me feel uncomfortable at all through the whole movie and it starts perfectly perfectly crisply with that with that first scene between the two of them i love it he,
4: he is very charming but i i was actually surprised that like i mean not surprised like this is a lot of things in this movie are cliches or tropes some of them are from this movie right so it's just looking at it now <laughs> you can not realize that right but this this type of scene this is not from this movie this is a a, a very classic scene where you're introduced to the woman character who was the the old flame Mm -hmm. And the man needs something from her. But her reaction is you're just trying to get back together. And you, the audience, know actually he needs help. But also, he wants to get back together.
1: Yeah,
2: not now, it's Marian, <laughs> Right? It's a little, so, yeah. It's a little Marion yeah. Right. And, so, indeed.
4: so that scene is in many, 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 many movies. Well, it's also like screwball comedy too, to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. And because Robert Redford is Robert Redford, and he's very charming, and because this is written in a tasteful way, he's able to pull that off without seeming slimy. But he does, in fact, after saying the serious is just about, I need your help with this thing, I need your skills, so on and so forth. He does slide in. Oh, and by the way, can I call you? Yeah. Right. Like, of course he, he does. He. he it doesn't seem stalkery because he's charming and he's not overbearing or terrible and you don't feel scared. But in the end, he does not respect her wishes to keep this professional within the exact same scene. He nudges in that direction, <laughs> albeit in a gentle way. <laughs> so you know everything has to be graded on a curve here. But I feel like this the scene works really well. And it is a good example of that kind of scene. And I feel like the uh, what's her name? Uh, Mary
1: McDonnell. What's the character's name? Oh, yeah, Liz. Was it? Liz. Liz. Liz.
4: Yeah. Liz. Liz comports herself in the movie as if she knows that most of the scenes she's in have been in other movies and she's just <laughs> as tired of them as you are, right? But she's going to do them with dignity mm. and to the best of her ability and allow herself to be carried around with the rest of the... Like, she she elevates what would otherwise be... I'm not going to say, like, a cliche role because it's, like... It, it's repeat, it repeats in movies for a reason. Like, we react to it well. It is, it is a good type of scene. Uh, but this movie just does it, like... A little bit, a little bit gentler, and a little with a little bit of uh, heightened awareness that the people participating in it know you've seen this kind of scene before, and they want to give well, it a little something. And, extra. and despite
2: the despite the the suggestion that like, oh, well, he's interested in getting back together, and she's not. That's kind of put paid by the scene where they're in the lecture, and he's like, "Oh, so you seeing anyone?" And she shushes him, and then they flip it around. You know, two seconds yeah, later, yeah. where he's like, "Oh, are you seeing anyone?" You know, and, and it's like. <laughs> There is a, you get the idea, as Jason said, these two characters, something came in between them, but there is still chemistry there and they Mm -hmm. do still clearly care for each other. And
4: like, that's why it doesn't feel as, as icky. They don't have a giant romantic kiss as the climax of the movie, which thank God, right? Because the plot of this movie is not how Robert Redford got his groove back. (laughs) (laughs)
1: she gets swept into the plot at various points but she's also sort of at at a a couple of points takes herself out of it where she's like all right that's enough of this nonsense and then she yes she does end up um being uh swept away in the in the climax of the movie to the to the the building and by stephen patowalski and all of that but there there is uh she she at, at several points is kind of like disengaging like you you know This is more of your nonsense. I'm getting out of here, which I also appreciate. Um, You
3: you don't have a business. You have a club, a boys club. Boys club. Uh, She's she's not wrong.
1: All right. Let's take another break and then we will continue. Uh, But I want to tell you about our second sponsor. It's Ethos. I'm sure you are like me. You are the uh, dear listener, the type of person who likes to plan ahead. You got a savings account. You've contributed to your 401k been doing that since i was in my 20s planning for retirement if you haven't already think about life insurance i know you may have been putting this off no one wants to think about it it's complicated it's expensive it's time consuming ethos is a faster easier and more affordable way to get life insurance it makes sure your family is taken care of even if you're not around to take care of them And they're committed to finding the plan that's best for you and your budget, all from the comfort of your computer, tablet, or phone in 10 minutes or less. All you have to do is answer a few questions about things like your health, your age, your income, and you can get an instant estimate. Then it takes just a few minutes to finish your application. Everyone's different, but a healthy 35-year-old can get a million dollars of coverage for $50 a month. So with Ethos, you can rest easy knowing you've got everything taken care of. And this time, confusing terms and piles of paperwork, are not included. Listeners to The Incomparable can get started by going to ethoslife.com slash snell and clicking on Check My Price. Again, get a fully personalized quote by going to e t h slash snell. One last time, be sure to visit ethoslife.com slash snell so they know that we sent you. Thank you to Ethos for supporting The Incomparable. So uh, Donald Logue is a brilliant mathematician who has got a whole a whole plan. <laughs> he, he doesn't know how to use projectors, though. <laughs> he projects them onto his own face. It was
3: it oh. was artsy, man. He was wearing a
1: white suit. It was on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I, very 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 I am hair the, hair. the numbers. I am the numbers are all over me. But what Look I, at the hair. What I am impressed by is if you listen to the 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 words that he's saying, which are often undercut by the dialogue that's going on out in the audience, um, they, they whoever their advisor was for this movie does a pretty decent job of explaining kind of some some of the underpinnings of encryption and the idea that, you know, mathematical things that goes on in terms of creating encryption. And so Donald Logue says enough of those words. This is what this movie does so well. It's not going to sit there and explain to you how encryption works, but
4: especially in the 90s, you do have to get across somehow yeah. what's at stake here. And they do that as best as you can by not dwelling on it. By ha- Like you said, by having the scene not be about the person projecting in front of the whiteboard but have it be about the people in the audience talking to each other
1: the reason i'm complimenting it is i feel like it goes further down the route of being what is real than it actually has to and that's and and that somebody again somebody involved on the technical side as a scientific advisor uh got more into this movie than really needed to be there and i every time i see it i'm impressed it's like yeah, you know, did they read Stephen Levy's book Crypto? Maybe they did. Maybe they did. I don't know. Was it out then? I don't know. But this is like they are close enough that, like, good for you movie that you're not. You know, it's not like a magic uh, box, uh, magic box with a red ball inside, like every J.J. Abrams movie, well, right? But <laughs> it might as well have
4: been though, because there is the larger problem. Like, so set aside the details of the cryptography. Pretend they got it all right. It right. Doesn't really matter, right? But
1: there is a magic box inside an answering machine. <laughs>
4: so, the, yeah, the larger problem is that this type of situation where there is some sign of kind of discovery or breakthrough with finding large prime factors or something like that, like there's some mathematical discovery it's, Incompatible with a plot where you're fighting over a, a MacGuffin, right? An yes. actual physical device, because knowledge can't be contained in a little box. And I know they kill the mathematician, and they're like, "Well, he was the only person who knew." That's not really how academics work. Exactly. Works. This is
1: this is what I said <laughs> while we were watching it uh, the other night. Was the problem is that this is a uh, a discovery that Donald Logue makes, mm-hmm. and um, and it turns into a device. Th- there's never there's never one of those where like, oh well, this guy figured it out, but then uh, he we died, killed him, so it's gone. On. and yeah. now no one will ever learn it that is that absolutely is not how it works and, and
4: not no knows all of his research
1: assistants would know it tons of
4: other people exactly like, that's not how
2: he clearly works. did his soldering himself he's got <laughs> yeah. the soldering yeah.
1: he made a magic MacGuffin box that decodes all the US codes and that is right. that it, it's like so it's, it, it does what it needs to do we get the awkward uh, reception scene afterward um, where you know where there, there's uh, the his friend uh, Greg who is Gregor from the Russian consulate and he's a spy, but he's got a new fake title now that makes it look cultural like he's a cultural attaché, attaché. Yeah, the classic <laughs> classic spy title over there. Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. Uh, so that that we get all of that kind of wrapped around in here. Um, but uh, let's see. So what what is the sequence um, they they break into the office and steal the box. Does that they happen first, first? They
2: they, they surveil, surveil it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they're
4: watching. They're yeah. trying to get the password over. The, oh, they were shoulder surfing the
2: guy. We
1: learned that that uh, that Yannick, Doctor Yannick, has a girlfriend from the uh, from Czechoslovakia. Yep. Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Okay, and slightly dated. So they just want to want to be. <laughs> they just want to be together, and uh, they take turns uh, looking through the telescope at this. And it's like, no, this is really uncomfortable now. We and they lower the blinds in the office and all of that.
3: Uh, they they do figure it out, and I, I I'm very torn about the manner in which they are able to determine where the magic box is. That it's the the answering machine. I think it's a very clever a little bit that uh, they're looking for the password just as she's standing in front of the camera and they have to keep scrubbing back and replaying that sequence over and over again.
0: That's which for the audience.
3: Is, yeah, well, it is for the audience, but it's also just like, you know, reinforced because, you know, you we've heard it this many times. Somebody yeah. finally picks up on it. The fact that it's the blind character, I'm... I'm not entirely <laughs> comfortable with the, uh, I feel like, you know, we've got the, the one woman and she's the character type. I feel like you have the disabled person who is also the character type and because he can't see, he's super, super good at, at other things, which is a trope that kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit. So the fact that he's the one that figures it out, I, I I like and I don't like because I like him as a character, but at the same time, I feel like they lean on the fact that, oh, he's blind. So he has superpowers in other ways. Just a little bit too
4: much for my taste. Yeah, that was a real- you could not put a blind person in a movie in this decade or any before without them having super hearing it was absolutely a rule so (laughs) it's again a cliche and it's a cliche for a reason i feel like the treatment of his blindness is not great in this movie they have him fumbling around much more than i see actual blind people fumbling around yeah Mm -hmm. somewhat to comedic effect again you have to grade on a curve but in general he is shown to have skills he his skills Granted, some of it is the super listening power, but it's also figuring out uh, how to solve problems by. <laughs> yeah, at having, least he is
3: brilliant. Like, yeah, legitimately. Having
4: Marty replay what, what he heard. He feels like a character, too, right? Like he sure. has a personality
2: mm-hmm. that is not just I'm super powered. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to me, that David Strathairn's performance really goes a long way. I mean, he's not I think John's right. Like
4: it's played a little over the top um in a way that you probably wouldn't do today and he's not great about sight lines occasionally his eyes you know like uh, we've seen lots of people play play uh blind people and that he, he's better with the glasses on let's put it that way i
1: well, <laughs> also i i am a little baffled by the scene where he figures it out that it's on his desk because to me the way i always read that scene is sort of like guys 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 Didn't you hear that answering machine that was sitting on the table? It's like, well, no,
4: they describe the contents of the room first and then they're all watching the video, but he can't watch the video. So all he's doing is listening to the audio. It makes sense in context. It's just, you know. That's yeah, not a super hearing, that's just... He's the only one paying attention. Yeah. I, he said, describe the room to me.
3: Yeah, and the, there's a desk with a lamp on it and an answering machine and a pencil case and blah,
4: blah, blah. So, like, it's all in a row. They put it together. In this case, it's not because he can hear better, it's because he can't participate in the visual right. experience. No. So all he's doing is listening to that same stupid line over and, and over. And again. I agree with
2: with uh, Erica, like, I think it's actually cleverly done, the fact that they keep scrubbing it so many times over and over mm-hmm. again that you kind of just stop listening and black it out. Whereas, yeah. like yep, John yep. said, he's... he's he, that's all he's got. And all of a sudden he's like, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. He solved the so puzzle. So at least it
3: doesn't, it doesn't right. rely on super hearing. It just relies on the fact that he's paying, paying
4: attention. <laughs> it relies on the audience knowing what an answering machine is, which is <laughs> <the power laughs> entry in this movie now.
0: You know, one of the things that I loved about this scene in, in contrast to what I said earlier, it does feel dated because you hear the, as they scrub back and forth, which is something that I haven't heard in years because I haven't used a VHS tape in years. Uh, but that really kind of did take me a little bit out of the movie and, Oh, right, right, right. Tapes. Those were a thing, huh? And in the same way that answering machines, for some reason, didn't, because, I don't know, I'm old enough that I grew up with answering machines. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, answering machine. But the the scrubbing noise of the tape, you know, rewinding and fast forwarding and whatnot, that was so jarring to me in a way that, that a lot of the other things that I should have been jarred by were not.
2: A fun exercise with this movie is how many of these things could you do with your iPhone?
1: <laughs> yeah. many That's of a very them, as good point. <laughs> All of them, possibly. Probably all of them, yeah
4: you could not you could well, I don't know could you uh, could you have Braille output on your iPhone, I suppose with a with a device that plugs into the lighting port?
0: Oh, actually, I'm glad you brought that up, John. I meant to bring that up at some point tonight. One thing I noticed when I watched the movie today for the first time is that if you look even in today's TV and movies, every time anyone uses a computer, it beeps and bonks and, and borps and whatnot the entire time they use it because mm-hmm. otherwise it makes it the seems sound a little of boring. floppy
1: discs
4: that don't exist anymore. Yeah, and the no, the windows beep when they appear. Text makes noise exactly. when each letter appears yep. on the screen.
0: That's what I'm talking about. Is exactly what John said. And it struck me when I watched today that that braille terminal, for lack of a better word, I, I don't know the actual term for it. That that clickety clacking served the same purpose but did it in a way that made so much more sense to me, both in universe and as a nerd, you know, because when I watch, I don't know, like I used to love CSI and CSI was awful about this, that they would have bleeps and borks and bonks all the time. And it, it, anytime anything happened on the computer, which is so not the way computers are, but in this, as Whistler's trying to read what's going on, you hear the clackety clackety clack of, of that Braille terminal, you know, emitting, if you will, the Braille. And I thought it was so perfect. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, and it kept me, in the movie where bleeps and bonks would not have
4: they do a good job in this movie of making technology sexy right like it's it's old technology but every every shot of the technology is like beautifully lit and it's filled with portent and we're, we're understanding that these are important tools and it's not obsessed over too much but it's clear that the the hardware part of this uh you know of their trade is a serious thing in a way that i think all good spy movies have to, you know, depending on how far you go, have to get into the gadgets and stuff. This, The gadgets in this computer uh, in this movie are personal computers and a soldering iron and, you know, magnetic tape.
1: All right. So they, they steal the box in a scene that is very funny because Marty gets waylaid by the Czechoslovakian girlfriend. And uh, in his earpiece, they continue to make up ridiculous things for him to say <laughs> that he that, that it happened too, just just too long and too late and also don't make sense. And he ends up kind of rolling with it. And we get to see this back and forth, which is actually pretty funny, um, you know, that he's got a wife, uh, you know, and, and all these things. But no, but you should stay with him and be happy. And there's a whole he's just... <laughs> Just trying to get out of there with the box, which he does, and uh, and then they have a like a, a party back at the office, which I think is funny because sort of like guys, you still have the box, you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have so they're,
3: they're, many they're so Christmas lights, like they must have been ready for that party. <laughs> that place is great.
2: Yep. There's a throwaway line in here that I really enjoy, which is where they're talking about what they're going to do with the money, and Crease says about him and his wife we've never been to europe and it amends it says together and of course you're thinking this guy was a cia agent so he's like drapes around europe <laughs> yeah. like wow what was he doing i just love it because it's never never like never. it's not really addressed it's just sort of a dropped in there and again you can't say enough good things about sydney poitier because he spends this entire movie just being awesome
1: I've never been to europe and not killed somebody this is where uh, Marty <laughs> works out uh, with the uh, Scrabble tiles. C-Tech Astronomy is ultimately an anagram of too many secrets, uh, which is like, "Oh, oh, this you you've given everything away." Anyway, they uh, <laughs> he goes down to the Embarcadero to the old uh, Hills Brothers Coffee building, which I've been to at uh, the, the he's basically on the on the at the outside of the Palomino restaurant and uh you know the NSA guys are there and he's gonna give him the box and Sidney Poitier does one of those mm, 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 um your mom it's your no, no, no. mother he, yeah. phone.
3: he specifically <laughs> says mother which is really important because yeah. you know mother mm. is the conspiracy theorist of the group so something's going on yes. that's how I'm gonna yeah, twin you know, but it has
2: it has Robert Redford's also delightful division she's a.
1: She's old, <laughs> <laughs> so he's thinking on his feet. That guy, and so you know, city Poitier is like you get in the car. He's like, but they haven't paid me. He's like, get in the car, and we we need to go right now. And uh, and because these guys are not, they have figured out they are not NSA guys. They are somebody else, and they assume that it's the Russians. But uh, what what Greg tells him. Is that uh, that it's not them, or as as far as he knows, but that definitely uh, Yannick was working for the NSA to build this code cracker um, that that only works for them. At which point they are pulled over, and there's a really nice tense scene where Gregor is basically like, "You you can claim basically immunity, and I'll protect you in the in this car because this is Russian territory." And uh, Robert Redford's like not going to deal with that, and he gets out. At which point uh, they uh, they shoot. Uh, gregor in the broadway tunnel he's dead and uh and, and the uh, driver just runs away and it's all it's come apart
2: yes oh, he, he also gets shot though Made me wonder if do you think edward snowden snowden got his idea to defect from to
1: russia after watching this movie mm-hmm. oh i can just claim asylum in russia it'll be easy. in a limo it'll be fine yeah it'll be fine it'll be fine so it's a it's uh it, it turns out Turns out that flashback at the very beginning of the movie, I guess if it starts the movie, it's not a flashback. It's just set in the past because you're not. Anyway, (laughs) I don't want to get into the uh, the the uh, philosophy of whether the uh, production company logos at the beginning are set in the present day or not. So um, (laughs) it turns out. Ben Kingsley, who is Cosmo, his pal who uh, was arrested when he went out to get pizza, he is the one who is behind this whole plot to steal this thing. He has been uh, working for the mob... and he it, it now has a plan to basically overthrow the world economy and do basically a bigger version of what they did in that opening scene of transferring money from the bad guys to the good guys and this is this is the re- reveal uh and marty basically turns him down and so he sets he ruins marty's data and reveals who he is in government databases and has him taken back to San Francisco and dumped out of a car there's something really
2: I, that I found myself thinking about this time, which I hadn't always noticed like consciously, is how much of the structure of this movie. Not only is it just perfectly structured. I mean, Cosmo appears almost exactly at the one hour mark, um, but the there's a lot of mirroring of structure. So the scene where you know Martin's in the limo with Gregor, and Martin is demanding you know from Greg like who who is who was you know Eddie Jones working for, and as Gregor is going to sort of maybe tell him. The the cops pull them over, right? They Almost exactly that moment. He's just like, who is he working for? The lights come on in the background, the siren. Yep. And it's almost kind of a flip of the opening scene with him getting into the car and the police showing up, right? Except at that point, he was being dragged, like Cosmo was being dragged away. And now he's being dragged to Cosmo. So there is actually some really nice like symmetry in a lot of these scenes and the way things are shot and the way things are structured, which I think is, is actually really impressive the more you look at it.
4: I'm mean, going to follow through in the, the character of Cosmo. We only see him briefly in the beginning, but it's clear. I get kind of like, a, like they're hippies, you know, uh, fight the power, trying to do you know, <laughs> rot from the rich and give to the poor or whatever. And that's the last we see of him. And but he's a cheater cl- too. Yeah, well, and it's yes, exactly. Well, he's a magician, you know, the the lowest form. Anyway, <laughs> <where else>? <laughs> <laughs> and uh it, it's it's clear that 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 ethos stuck with Cosmo, whereas uh Marty moved on. I mean, not that he doesn't still, you know, share some of those views, obviously, as we see at various points in the movie, but that he's not. He's not obsessed with yeah. them.
3: I mean, either it stuck with him or it, it grew because he was trapped in jail with nothing else to think yeah, about.
4: Yeah. Well, he, you know, it was, it was a traumatic experience Whereas Marty got away um, and he, he works for the mob just as his day job. Like that's not he's not super into the organized crime, but it just pays the bills, you know. But his real plan is world domination by the typical supervillain, you know, erasing all the records yeah. of who owns everything. It's, and just like his plan know, that... is the plot of Mr. Robot <laughs> and, or, or or fight, or fight, club. and or Fight Club. club. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> And many, many other movies, but it's it's very much a like the system is keeping us down and all these records. And, and the angle in this movie is that technology is the tool with which you can overthrow that, which is actually kind of optimistic and and sort of hopeful to imagine that one lone hacker could topple the system. Like in the 90s, it was you're willing to believe one evil Ben Kingsley could do this. And even though he's the bad guy, we know he's the bad guy. Just the idea that he thought that he could do that with like a magic decryption box and that it would turn out in any way well for him or the rest of us is something we're willing to uh, believe in this movie with all its 90s technology and mm-hmm. 90s San Francisco. Yeah. Yep.
3: You had to know he was the bad guy like from moment 1 because he has all that weird like grated metal furniture. Like no good guy is going to have uh, an office layout <laughs> all, like with that. All
4: the art and the ponytail. The crazy uh, art the and the ponytail. ponytail and the and, and the, the aquarium suit. and that accent. We- Oh yeah. Well, also, which yeah. One? We
2: do need we do need mm-hmm. to have a call out for my favorite line reading in this entire movie, which is Ben Kingsley's delivery of disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard. amazing. He,
4: amazing. He spent, he spent some time with an accent coach, clearly, but they only did like seven
1: words, and the rest of them he says like Ben uh, Kingsley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I, so true. I I was gonna say, um, y- you know, we've had a couple people say this is the perfect movie or close to a perfect movie. I I find that when I go years without seeing this movie, I remember Ben Kingsley very clearly and his whole Mahdi, right, thing that he does in watching it. Ah, you know... I don't think it's a very good performance. I think it's a bad uh-uh. accent. I think he's the weakest thing <laughs> in the movie. I think his accent is weird. I think the character isn't very good. He's just kind of a supervillain in the end. Um, I don't think he's that interesting. He's got his couple of scenes where he chews the scenery. I would just say, I mean, I don't think he's terrible, but I, I, I think he's the weak link in this movie if there is I would one. argue that his I mean I can see where you're coming from I
2: also think that he has a couple of really good I think the scene with him and Redford at the very end on the rooftop is actually really good i really enjoy their back and forth in terms of that and i think he gives a more nuanced performance there than he does elsewhere in the movie
4: i think he doesn't have enough time for pathos i we i think uh, if you if we could add a, in a couple scenes for him like he we we understand implicitly that he has had a painful experience that like he went to jail robert redford didn't that it has hardened him that he is angry at the world but that he also wants marty to be with him we and we understand these things a lot uh, because we've seen them in other movies but uh, but in the end he's not given a lot of scenes to express that pain he's given one or two moments um and you know re-watching this for the umpteenth time uh like the, the more i watch it the more i think that like robert redford gets to be a little glib like i feel like robert redford should also be he does express some pain and remorse for what went on but in the end he is the the, the actor i kept thinking of watching this is like how would this have been different with george clooney george clooney does glib all the time but george clooney always does glib with an undercurrent of pain like that's his thing right and all the movies where I, i love george clooney he is glib and uh you know overconfident and but also a little harried and underneath it all kind of a sadness and robert redford does that same thing here but his essential Robert Redfordness, his his golden hero ness, comes through mm-hmm. a little bit. And so when he's up on that roof, he's like, "Listen, vaguely pained hero, who I may or may not have wronged in my past, I feel kind of bad about it, but like, not that bad."
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a there's a couple things about this scene that um, I found somewhat striking. I love that they just casually sit on a cray. Is because that is yeah, a cray, yeah. right? Yeah, um, it's cray life. There certainly certainly something Cray-esque, which is, you know, a supercomputer of the day. And I love that it wasn't, like, called out or anything. And if you didn't necessarily know what that was, I don't think... I think you would just think it was odd furniture in an odd room. For um, years, I
4: thought I was super confused. Like, why is there a booth with a with a seat in it? It's exactly. super weird. <laughs> or did you think so, then they made the Cray supercomputer. They copied that movie that I saw. <laughs> yeah. That's so yeah, weird. That's they would have picked exactly. the same design for the computer. I, I mean, it's what I said before, that the some of the... There is a respect for the hardware things and from the real world that are the tools of this job. Even when it's not mentioned, the backdrop is somebody, someone had to look up supercomputer and think this guy should have one, and they put it in the movie.
0: Uh, the other thing about the scene that I, I genuinely don't entirely understand is when they go into the craze, like, you know, private booth or whatever, that was because Cosmo had indicated that somebody was listening. But he's like the boss man king. So who is listening? The mob.
1: The mob, uh, I figured, See, that's yeah. what I
0: thought, too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, it's the mafia. It's his mafia handlers. It's his day
4: job. If you think about any of the tech stuff in this, like even just looking through the window at the, the sexy times between the, the professor or whatever, what kind of amazing optics do you have to have to get... Uh, over the shoulder keys on a keyboard yeah. through through, through uh, blinds on a window yeah, 700 yeah. yards away like you just you just go with it they the the movie is not about tech
1: it's government, the way. government the government and then you
3: just zoom and enhance so yeah. Everything's yeah, exactly. yeah.
1: all right so Marty has gotten uh thrown out. Of a car, I was going to say unceremoniously, but they dropped him right on the top of uh, the crest of a hill in San Francisco with a beautiful backdrop. So, you know, it was very nice of them to do that. So they go to Liz's apartment and they get the group together and they know they're in trouble now. Um, they they do a bounce off of a billion satellites to talk to the NSA and they end up talking to James Earl Jones and There's a countdown. It's very exciting, yeah. but you he need hey, to have know the it's box. James Earl
4: Jones. That could be anybody at the end of that phone line. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they have, they, if you have a mysterious voice in your movie, don't. Make it a person with one of the most recognizable voices. In the world no, upstairs. that's that's
0: fun. Is this Darth Vader so
1: we're talking to yeah. here? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, I love that scene though because it's a scene that I think. Could have been, could have landed so wrong. You know, with the, how do you how do you display or show that they're tracing the call and that they're trying to avoid the trace by bouncing it off of these satellites all around the world? You know, it's like with searching for Bobby fisher or whatever it was. Where you know, mm-hmm. how do you make chess exciting? And they did it. I think it, they nailed it in that scene. How
2: do
4: you have a lie detector that works with someone on a phone?
2: Yeah. Right? right yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
0: but good.
4: it's still good. It a, a, works. A giant bundle of what would come to be tropes. Again, I'm not sure if this was the first one, but I. Like the thing that they do in this movie that they would do much more in future movies is, and not so much in earlier ones, is use actual computers to put up a ridiculous and fantastical, but still computer generated display to the point where at one point when they're like scrolling through the security uh, blueprint of the building at the end, like the frame rate is terrible and the redraw is all around. Yeah, yeah. they (laughs) they use actual computers of the day. To show that map with the little lines, which has no bearing on reality in the same way that like war games, when you're trying to figure out a code one digit at a time, like it doesn't make any sense. But in the, in the it makes movie sense. Right. What yeah. you need in the scene is, uh, you know, can you guarantee my safety? Like you need it's the it's the interplay of the characters and everything else is just ticking clock. And the lie detector thing, which is also ridiculous, if you have any idea how lie detectors work. And, you know, but it doesn't matter, like for, for the purposes of the scene, it is a scene that could play out as drama with the technology aside and you can't save a scene like that with technology, but you, you can enhance use it. technology to help communicate what you're trying to say in the scene. And it's better when you do that than if they, I mean, I don't know what the alternative is just having people shout things or yeah. doing it with hand drawn animation. It's gotta be on a computer screen.
1: All right. So uh, now they realize that they need to take the box uh, back. And that means they're going to have to figure out where, uh, where Maddie's nemesis <laughs> <laughs> is uh is residing and they do this through one of my favorite scenes in the movie having first seen this movie about uh I think during the period where I was commuting across the San Mateo bridge every week every day uh they do it by Marty describing the sounds that he heard when he was in the trunk of the car And he describes uh, that he went over a bridge and they figure out based on a a bunch of clues, including the amount of time separating the uh, the clacks on the concrete of the bridge, that it must have been the San Mateo Bridge. And they and they they figure out that there's a cocktail party, which is like where (laughs) all these these birds (laughs) are at the reservoir. And they and they figure out. Using these techniques, which, again, don't think about it too closely, but it's a lot of fun to see them kind of solve this puzzle just using these audio cues. They figure out this area where it must be, and there's private property there with a big building, and it's the this mysterious toy company, and they immediately figure out it's got to be a front uh, and they, they listen and hear like high security systems and all these things, which leads to their <laughs> new plan, which is they surveil the building and figure out who has the office next to the high security stuff. It's Stephen Tobolowski. And they uh, they they uh, discover that he is uh, computer dating, and so they set him up on a fake computer date with Liz. Hey, we know one woman. Uh, let's use her and have her <laughs> yeah. figure out what's going on. I let's will say do. there's a yeah.
2: there's a nice mirror point there too, where yep. you know, she's describing who, you know, who is this guy into, you know, she, you need someone She's, refined and meticulous. The man who
3: folded this tube of crest is looking <laughs> yeah. for someone refined, it's meticulous, so anal. anal. And you get that moment where everybody stops and turns and looks at her, which is an exact mirror of at the beginning when where Robert he says I'm, says, I'm thinking of asking yeah. Liz and everybody stops and turns around yep. and looks at him.
0: I read, and I couldn't find it earlier tonight. And, and now I've just found it and I'll make sure it's in the show notes. A really great article that he wrote for mm-hmm. slate, uh, almost 10 years ago now it was a while ago but anyway and this the title is memories of the sneaker shoot i can't read the subtitle i can't remember ever having so much fun on a movie and i'll have to reread this after we're done recording because it's very short but very good it's it, at least as best as i rec- remember and it i i can just imagine how much fun this movie must have been to film with this cast
2: yeah, yeah. there's i mean and he he talks about improvising some of it and they were just <laughs> told to like basically try and make mary McDonald laugh Uh, At a bunch of points, but he he is, you know, they describe him going in as the world's most boring human, and he starts out in one place, and I have to say full credit to him for being both, you know, he ends up being boorish, but the, the look on his face there's this really incredibly smarmy look that he delivers in the Chinese restaurant scene oh, gosh, when so he says, you know, shall I call a phone you or nudge you? Oh yeah. And he just looks so, so
4: pleased with himself. I didn't get that one when I was younger
2: either. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh yeah, me neither. But it is it is a great delivery from him and a great response from Mary McDonnell asking for the check immediately. <laughs> yeah. His
4: character takes on a more sinister vibe again in our current yes. fall, fallen state. because he I think is, he's kind of sinister here. <laughs> yeah, he is. Well, he has a dark turn later when he finds the thing in her purse. But even before that, he is so sort of he doesn't find it odd at all and doesn't make any effort to be appealing to the woman he's ostensibly on a date with. He just assumes that, like, this person will be interested in me and I can be my normal. Like, th- th- there's two ways this will go. The one one quirky thing is like, oh, oh, good. Geez, I've never been on a date before. I don't know what to do with myself. They don't take that approach. They take the approach of that he is caught up in his own little world and really is not making much of an effort to impress her and is only engaged with her when she flatters him
3: well i mean look at his license plate yeah
0: Yeah, that's true the license plate is so bad that that's your first hint you're exactly right
4: and she has to handle him she knows she's she knows what she's signed up for she handles him as best as possible it's frustrating it's like trying to deal with a recalcitrant dog or a small child but that's that's the job she's chosen Mm -hmm. for herself and that's what she's uh bending her skills towards but yeah, he does. He's not. He doesn't come off as uh, lovable, likable. And then when he finds the the ID in the purse, he he goes full on like, like, is he kidnapping? Is he physically coercing? At various points, he's grabbing her arm and dragging yeah. her
1: braces. Not mm-hmm. a good look. No, well, he's uh he's a he's a, he's bad, a bad guy. guy. He's a bad guy. Yeah. I, I mean he works for a,
4: he works for an evil toy company, so we should assume <laughs> that like, he, <laughs> like right. if you work for a defense contractor, I can see him being like, Oh, my research, but he works for a toy company. Yeah. Or like a, a actual front, toy company. He makes toys. He
1: works for a mob front for a toy company. I think he makes toys though, I think he thinks he's yeah. a toy maker. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's a creep. Yep. He's a. He's what about that creep.
4: amazing voice voice uh, recognition technology? Again, so so <laughs> mundane now. But you watch this when you're a kid; it's like the toys will be able to understand our voices. This is the future.
2: Yeah, I mm-hmm. also do say that the scene where he says "play dad, and the dog
4: just <laughs> falls over it is
2: such a great little bit of prop comedy.
1: So th- we do get this. Is the you know Liz is um, getting him to say all the words. So that they can piece together the my voice is my passport, verify me, so that they can get into his office, which is a, an incredibly memorable part of this. Um and and yeah, he he gets suspicious. She does a great job though. She's like, Oh, there's a word, because it's the like there she's <laughs> down to the last word. I just ah oh, it gets me really excited when people say it. Could you say this word? And I'm like, All right. Like it's a weird
4: <laughs> is such a great demo of how dumb uh people can she be when in the thrall of, of romance. Yeah. Like that, no like no <laughs> thinking person. But he he's willing to go along with Verify. it. Verify. She, sh- she, she shows interest. like And it's like, if you were thinking with your brain for half a second, you'd be like, what is going on? Yeah. But nope. she seems really interested, so I'm going to go along with it.
2: I want to say also, I really love the setup scene that's happening sort of intermingled with this, which is um them trying to figure out how to beat the man trap and how to beat the motion sensors um and i i really love that scene They they talk about well we have two options one we put you in a neoprene suit two we raise the body temperature we're gonna have to do that because the neoprene suit would suffocate you
1: and even then you can only move two
2: in like an inch was it two inches per second or something like that yes. mm-hmm. uh and it has
4: dan Aykroyd's great remember to go real slow <laughs> <laughs> all credit to robert redford who uh does not sweat in 98.6 degrees
1: <laughs> no that's <room>. true <laughs> he is amazingly dry through that he's cool under pressure guys he that's is, why he's the leader even when yeah. it's 98 degrees in that in that room so in the end the big the big finale is that liz gets brought uh by steven tobolowski to the to the building and uh, of course, Ben Kingsley is there as well. They figured out that, that Marty is in the building uh, and you know, Marty gets the box, but uh, there's a lockdown and there's a whole big kind of like back and forth. And that he's in a, he's in a crawl space and they've got Liz and all of these things happen. And in the end, uh, what, what we end up with is he, he gives the box back to Cosmo um, and you know, if you're not paying attention to the fact that he had a fake, he had another answering machine box that is almost certainly to what this is. with. Yes, to, yes, exactly. Then you may have missed that, that this is how he's able to, you know, he's got, they, they're, they're able to fool this thing. He actually has taken the circuit board out of it or whatever, and it isn't checked. It isn't checked. But in the end, they, uh, they are able to escape and, uh, and, uh, the, their ride comes in the form of uh, Whistler driving the van being told how to drive even though he's blind over the radio. There's a lot that goes on in this sequence. There's a lot of a lot of wacky stuff happening in a very short amount of time. All it's, of it man. on the knife's edge of being super exciting and dangerous and also kind of zany and it's a it's a nice combination. I enjoy the kind of zany threatening uh, like it's, mixture it's that we have, it's structured
2: really, really well. Again, yes. I mean, because you have a scene where Robert Redford is told to hurry, and the whole point is he cannot walk fast, which is a really great tension scene. You have the scene where you know they almost get away, and you know we're we're all right, great, we're home free, and then the guys show up and pull Sidney Poitier and Dan Aykroyd out of the car, yeah. uh, which has my single favorite Sidney Poitier line from the entire movie, which is
4: the uh, "Did I ever tell you why I had to leave the CIA?" <laughs> <laughs> and then He just beats the crap out of the guys. My temper. Yeah, they had they had the one line casual racism, which was also yep. a staple of '80s movies. Where if you're sure. going to have a black person in the movie, you do have to have someone be casually racist to them. But you get like one of those lines, and then the black person makes a stern face.
2: Yep. Well, you also get two of them because at the beginning of the movie, Rupert yep. Phoenix is putting lamp black on, and, yes. and Sidney Poitier gives him a look. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. okay, I, mm-hmm. and
3: not just Sydney Poitier. Like everybody Redford in that scene too, yeah. looks at him, and it's just like, what oh, dude. Like doing? even back then. And in 1992, people knew it was wrong. That's
4: how much acknowledgement you were allowed to give it per movie, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. it's all the right messaging in all
1: the right direction, but don't overwhelm people because then white people will feel bad. <laughs> Let's see. So they they end up back at uh, the office, and James Earl Jones is there, and uh, he gives him the the box. Uh, and so it's all going to be good, and they're going to clear his record, and they're going to give Sidney uh, Poitier uh, some trips, and they're going to like they're going to give everybody what they need.
3: Mother's going to get a Winnebago with a burgundy yeah.
1: interior. Yes. Let's, yeah, let's let's talk about this. Ending but they're here, but they're cause... not going to get any of those things because Marty pulled the motherboard out of the answering well, machine. He, he told him he doesn't told matter. him it didn't work, so yeah, he's that's getting true. a box and that's it, that, true. it doesn't work. He's got his backup, but here's here's the problem. So remember
4: <laughs> <Okay>. th- this. <laughs> This, oh, boy. I this will is, fight you. <laughs> this is, this is an is issue for this movie from a modern perspective. Back in the time, it's perfectly fine. But from a modern perspective, remember, what they're ostensibly doing, and everyone except for Robert Redford thinks this is what's actually happening here, is giving the NSA a thing that will allow them to decrypt all domestic intelligence uh, supposedly secure communication, So the NSA will be able to spy on the CIA and the FBI Right that's because it doesn't work on Russia's Codes because they use elliptical encryption or whatever They use over there right <laughs> that's what they They say we want this box and I'm like aha and the Deal is look you give Us the NSA the box which will Then let us illegally Surveil other domestic intelligence Agencies and that's all it will let us do And you just don't tell anybody That we have this box and in return We'll give you a nice vacation that trade is terrible. they're selling out the entirety of the security of their of the nation in which they live for <laughs> trinkets. Now from the modern perspective we look on that and see it as terrible because it doesn't seem so fantastical given all the things that have happened since this movie <laughs> at the time of this movie it's like but they're not gonna spy on their own agencies like they're just the NSA and they're kind of creepy but the government's mostly good and everything will be fine and there's, the government's not gonna spy it'll be fine right well but That's there's also it, a
2: black there's a blackmail angle too right because they do know about it
4: right but they can just kill those people like, <laughs> like it, it's so innocent and of its like in, in its time it totally works but from a modern perspective yeah they perspective, make it clear that like, they
3: don't believe the US government kills Kills people.
4: Right, like, right. Friend, but from a modern perspective, you're like, you group of supposed do-gooders just sold us all out for nothing. <laughs> and that, and that's like- For a Winnebago. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and like a, a European vacation and like- And just, that, girl's you know, right, that girl's phone right, number. That girl's phone number. Yeah. Well, it's just- like this is this is the thing it's not the fault of the movie it's the fault of how the world has changed since then if you made this movie today and the deal was okay we'll give you the thing lets you spot basically lets you have a coup or an insurrection based on your ability to see all other supposedly secure communications a coup by the NSA over the whole rest of the government We'll trade that for a Winnebago. It doesn't fly in a modern movie. Well, but I mean, I think that the the flip side to that, and you can headcanon in your
2: way out of this, is that they knew that Martin <laughs> well, wouldn't Robert do it, Redfield, right? Robert yes, but Redford like the rest that. of the team, but he's the leader, yeah. and the rest of the yeah, team is trusting they, his if, lead.
4: <laughs> if he told them, and if it was clear, although they didn't, but someone questioned him about it, and then he had to show, no, they're not, because he showed them the circuit board or whatever. So Robert Redford is in the clear, because he knows he's not actually trading anything, but everyone else <laughs> but,
0: Well, the rest of them are all
4: criminals, right? <laughs> yeah, and in the beginning, to be uh, fair, true. they said they didn't care if he went to prison, they just wanted the, the money anyway. So they've already shown their true colors. The <laughs> <Because> they're consistent.
1: <laughs> Except
4: for River Phoenix, who just wants a date. Yep. <laughs> and uh and uh what's her Harry name McDonald. Uh, she is mostly still just exasperated by the whole thing and i was like you live in this country too do you want nsa to have that box you don't also, let's let's point out that
2: the, the end the republican national committee still goes broke because apparently they're still the bad guys
4: <laughs>
1: yep. mm, well yeah i mean they were, they've they always been the bad guys
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well
1: done. some, some well things done. have
4: not changed
1: yeah it is it is see the way i always read it is uh and and this is a simple worldview but it's like well it's only us who use this encryption so the u.s government ought to have it because otherwise our enemies will have it because again remember it's never going to be invented again only donald <laughs> logue even knew about nobody
3: it nobody else is going to figure it out
1: and and there are no other kinds of encryption well, we already know there are
4: other kinds of encryption they say the russians have one and then in the fact there are other kinds that's of that's like encryption. cyrillic encryption and it's different <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> It's very difficult to unscramble those, because who can make sense the of all R's those weird letters? Are backward. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so the thing that looks like a weird A with a dent on the side of it, I don't know. That's a D, yes.
2: Yeah,
1: go.
4: that's it. Looks kind of like
1: that's a backwards You cracked the code, John. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> it
2: is. Uh, <laughs> Fully,
1: yeah. the U.S. government had people who spoke Russian. All right, so so basically what we're saying is, you know, having, having broken down the story, it's not like a super twisty turning plot. It's fairly straightforward. Um, no, the, it's not at all. And uh, but it, they get a, they get some problems to solve, and they solve them, and then things go wrong, and they have to kind of uh, improvise, and it all works out in the end, and everybody's happy. And uh, you know what? That that is uh, I, I think that's to this movie's strength that they keep it simple, and that they don't try to double over themselves too many times with the plot, and you just give the give it space for these characters to do their thing. And um, I think that's one of the things that makes this movie successful
4: that's what's great about this could have been an old movie club that's what's great about watching old movies is that where, where you get so used to sort of the the ratcheting of modern movies if this was made as a modern movie uh there you know, would be the, nuclear the, 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 missiles about n- to way fire, more explosions <laughs> <laughs> uh, like even even just the mechanics of the, plot, the double box thing where like he gives he gives uh what's it, cosmo the fake box right in a modern movie even hell in a modern episode of sherlock uh, Cosmo would know that he got an empty box, would open it right in front of his face and go, "Haha, ha, you'd have to do the double, the triple, the quadruple turns out. You can't do the single turns out. Nobody does the single turns out where it's just <laughs> one gag and the good guy gets it over and the bad guy. The good guy tries, in modern movies, the good guy tries to get it over, but the bad guy's too smart for that, but the good guy's too smart for that, but the bad guy's too smart for that. You can't, they don't let you do the simple one. This movie has all of its sort of events and puzzles distilled into the simplest, most straightforward form and feels no need to overcomplicate things because it doesn't think, it doesn't assume the audience is so sophisticated that a well-executed, simple, single mechanic can't be pleasing. Like, now modern movies are second-guessing themselves and the audiences so much that it's rare that they have the confidence to do a straightforward uh, gag, puzzle, twist, uh, you know, interaction... Uh, Like the the plot of this movie, as straightforward as it is, would be a hundred times more convoluted, especially in modern movies where it's about hackers and secrets and spies and double crosses, double cross, double cross is so 50s. It's got to be like you know some power of 2 cross 16 cross i don't even know what the the correct adjective is
2: well it goes back to what i was i was saying in the very first scene it, this movie's economical like it hits its marks perfectly like this is where the twist is this is where we do ratchet up things a little bit right like this is where something goes wrong and then we have a reversal etc like it i feel like you put it up with something like die hard in terms of like this movie is a template for like this is how you build a movie with suspense in it and i agree with john i think if you try to make this movie today it would be needlessly overcomplicated. it would have a lot of extra stuff in it and it would feel flabby and long but you know for a movie that even when i looked up today i was like i don't remember how long this was i looked i was like oh it's still two hours like that's pretty long but it
4: doesn't feel
2: long and it doesn't feel wasted it moves it
4: has two major parts like in in that way it is for its time it was actually fairly sophisticated because there's like The pre-story where you think it's basically over, and then there's the second story where, oh, it's not actually over, right? It has that structure, which, again, is much more common now than it was. And I'm not saying a modern version of this that that made it complicated would be bad. It's just that's what modern sensibilities dictate. And you can do it badly or well, and you can do simple badly or well. This does simple well. Uh, it's just like, this is the, the times the movie are made dictate sort of, you know, the structure they use. So I think this was actually sophisticated for its time, but in the modern time it is less sophisticated. And that's like, I think one of the things I like, get enjoyment of watching older movies is it's a change of pace. Not that, you mm-hmm. know, because I love modern Sherlock, just to give an example I threw out before. I love how twisty, turny and ridiculous and over the top that is because I have seen all the simpler things. And the good episodes of the modern Sherlock do that really well, and I enjoy it. It's not like I'm against it. It's just that sometimes you also want to see other varieties of things, and one way to do that is to find the movies from the past that people say they really love that are usually a classic for a reason, and there you get a different flavor, also well-executed.
3: I think I think that's one of the reasons I like watching it so much, because it is kind of refreshing that it's... you. I'm not spending so much time worrying about what the next twist and turn is going to be so I can focus on the characters and the jokes that they're making and the line deliveries and just the way that everybody is is interacting with each other. It's it's nice. It's relaxing. But it's also mm-hmm. tense. And yeah. the cinematography, I think. We haven't <laughs> talked about it's, how this movie is yeah, shot. It's, it's, it's,
4: it's shot really straightforward, well. But it is beautiful. It's, uh, I mean, I'm not going to go like, oh, it was shot on film. That's why it's not. But it's the sensibilities of how, how you would light actors and how you would choose these ridiculously scenic San Francisco backdrops, you know, despite the logic that may or may not exist for them.
2: I notated a few ones that I really liked. I like the scene, uh, this shooting uh, where um, Greg and uh, and uh, Martin are in the basement of the embassy at the yep, swimming pool. So oh, good. I love that. Love scene. that, very, especially Greg. Yeah. It somewhat over, somewhat uh, ham fisted, but Gregor leans into the shadow to say, "Martin, trust me, <laughs> Yes, trust me." Uh, ben Kingsley, that scene where where Werner Brandis drags in uh, Mary McDonnell and um you know then ben kingsley's like behind the glass and then he like lights up and is like yeah let's go look at his office like there's there's a nice shot there um a lot of the, i really love there's a little slightly dutch angled shot where robert redford is breaking into warner Brandis's office it's like a slightly off kilter shot as he swipes the card key down uh, i love that that's great and there's a uh, for i'll throw out for todd vizier there's a split diopter shot where uh where robert redford and ben mm-hmm. kingsley yes. uh, that first scene there together uh where it's really close up on robert redford so i i think this movie looks it looks great to me like it's not super flashy with the way it's shot but it just feels and looks the lighting's really nice and everything aesthetically just feels really shot in an atmospheric way
4: it's got a nagel painting in it doesn't it in the background of his uh that's why i keep thinking it's 80s i mean for crying out loud there's a lot of weird art. There's an x ray dog. Yeah, I'm looking at that scene. I'm looking at that scene now with the nagel painting in the background. He has a light up coffee table, too. Again, lighting that you might not actually notice, but his coffee table is lit from below and has a translucent top that shines upwards on the dog because it makes a good scene, but you don't think about it at the time.
1: Yeah. Well, the 80s, you know, rolled stuff bought in the 80s was used in the 90s. That's just how it works. It's just there's carryover
3: there. You don't redecorate that often. No. No.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> before we wrap it up, any anything we haven't covered that you'd like to yes. mention now is a good time. Are you going to uh, mention Dan? Are you going to mention James Horner and Branford Marsalis? I <laughs> knew you were. Yes, James. Yeah, Hamm- <laughs> I had
2: them in my notes. This is a fantastic score. It's so good. I finally had to break down and buy a CD of it because there was no other. I had like two tracks. You know, I got off a truck somewhere once in college, (laughs) and I had to buy the CD to get the rest of it. And there's still, as I keep listening through the movie, I'm like, God, there's so many cues that aren't on the soundtrack. Uh, But it's so well done. I mean you kind of heard one James Horner score. You heard them all. Sure. Like there's a lot of stuff that he reuses in here. He's got the heavy piano stuff, especially in that scene where they're figuring out what the box does, but everything is so timed well to stuff that happens in the movie. Um, The cues like where Whistler discovers um, puts the, the, they put the terminal and has the code scrolling across his glasses, which John mentioned, like the way the music hits at that point is just perfect. Uh, The handoff scene um, where, you know, Sydney Poitier tells uh, Robert Redford to get in the car. There's like this really heavy piano stuff that feels really tense and really scary. And I love the cue at the very end where uh, Ben Kingsley opens the answering machine and it's empty. There's just a nice, like, uh, melodic cue there, too. So I, I really love this. And Brantford Marsalis, although less well-known, I guess, than his brother, like, he does a fantastic job. It's a weird you know slightly jazzy like aspect to it but it really i cannot think of another score that has quite that quality to it like even the other james horner scores uh without that sort of solo aspect to it they sound very very different from this yes. so i i have to say i really love it
0: yeah i uh, noticed when i was watching today for the first time how percussive the piano was which yeah, i know a james like, horner I thing. yeah i don't know. And much about how music is created, but it, it's just so unbelievably percussive is the only word I can think of to, to use for it in a way that perhaps, you know, uh, more astute film, uh, film goers would notice in other films, like you were saying, Dan, but for me, it just, just, it stuck out so much and stood out so much that it's, it's, it's whoever it was, was like banging on the piano and it, yeah. and it makes, it makes these scenes for me anyway, very, very uncomfortable, which is exactly what it's supposed to do.
2: Yeah, the music gets more and more chaotic at points as stuff yeah, is yeah, like yeah. getting peeled away. If you want a close analog, uh, James Horner's score for Apollo 13, when stuff breaks down on the ship, he uses the exact same technique of hitting all the, the piano is very heavy in this sort of like chaotic, right? Like, so it's he he does like that, but it's, it's very effective.
4: We didn't, we didn't talk about why the NSA uh, arrives in your house with someone carrying a, like an like an army-issued giant machine gun. That seemed like a big gun for law enforcement or even a spy agency. It's not subtle. The NSA thing is really interesting. I I mean,
2: I did a little bit of studying on this when I was in college, and like you know, up to a certain point, the NSA was not a thing that anybody knew about. It was totally Mm -hmm. secret. And I think at this point, this is certainly the first time I had ever heard of them, and I would wager the first time that probably most people in mainstream culture ever heard of them, and so they were still that shadowy uh, agency that nobody really knew about. Maybe they do have but like maybe SWAT they do teams. Have Tommy guns. I don't know. If who knows? Tommy guns. It seems uh, seems like yep.
4: not the young woman with the, the, the Uzi they employ.
2: But yeah, I I think it is kind of they they make a convenient boogeyman because at that point everybody knows who the FBI and the CIA are. But the NSA is like, well, what is this shadowy spy agency that we don't know about? Maybe they are these like weird commandos. Who knows? Yeah, but not. would
3: they continue to point that gun directly at the chest of somebody who they are currently accepting a date with?
4: It just <laughs> seems weird. It's not great etiquette. It's yep. not good gun safety. More importantly, no. <laughs> not <laughs> yeah, good trigger that's, discipline. Right? That is a whole that's problem. More my problem. Yes, I do.
3: <laughs> She's supposed to be a professional,
4: and I feel like that just uh. Just well, doesn't they're follow. all they're
2: all code breakers who were handed Uzis right before that yeah, scene. That's the problem.
4: They are loaded. Maybe. They, they're all they're all like recent uh, math PhD graduates mm-hmm. at the NSA. <laughs> it was like, here, hold this gun. What? Uh,
3: <laughs> I I like the fact that you know, d- despite we have th- the fact that it's a uh, you know. Th- poor liz is the the only woman of consequence and whistler is the the character with the disability liz gets to help like in the sequence um mm-hmm. that you know that's so coolly shot from underneath the table where they're they're sliding around the scrabble tiles she's helping she's coming up with you know just as many anagrams as anybody else is uh, mm-hmm. which which i like a lot
1: she is never just the girlfriend right like she's mm. she's paying she's attention to the exasperated mother occasionally occasionally but she's like <laughs> she's paying attention to the uh to the lecture she is getting that information out of Stephen Tobolowski she like mm-hmm. she is she is never just kind of happy to be involved in whatever Robert Redford is doing, right? I always feel like there's more there, and some of that is the script, and a lot of that is Mary McDonald just bringing it's her a little, personality.
3: She's not really ever being coddled too much. I mean, you do get the one scene where, after they realize that, you know, anybody would kill for this thing, so nobody leaves the building, yeah, and Kreese is, yeah. is saying, no, you can't go, because you, you were the actual only person who knew about um, Martin's history before this. And But the, the part of that scene that I like so much is the fact that uh, that Robert Redford's character he, Marty never doesn't go along with that until it's really um, reinforced that um, that he, that Chris talks about that there were, there's, there's could be a government out there that's willing to kill us all. So I like the fact that you know it's it's not that Marty doesn't trust her. He does trust her. He just wants to make sure that she stays safe. Right. So there's there's a nice balance there. Also,
2: she does get her own. She gets funny lines too, including mm-hmm. I do like at the end where she takes the gun and she's like, "I'm an excellent marksman." Yeah, that's why you feel like you have
4: to grade these kind of movies on a curve because yeah. everything that they do that is like a cliche or a sexist trope or whatever, because they do it in a tasteful way, we give them a pass. But if a modern movie had someone in that type, of I mean, even in a modern movie, I think her role is mostly up to snuff. But making her being competent with the gun, making her like always be perfectly made up and uh, beautifully dressed, mm-hmm. and her hair perfectly done, and smiling uh, in a sort of bemused way at the silly boys running around, there are a lot of cliches to be had there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just that in general, this movie treats his character as well. And so yep. even when you go back and watch it, you don't cringe. But if you look at structurally, you're like, this doesn't seem... Equitable or reasonable in any way, but they're nice about it, so it's fine.
1: Nice sweater on her date too. Good sweater.
3: <laughs> and on the uh, on the side of, uh, of of Whistler, like they do have the occasional. You know, he can hear the security system, and he knows the tones by heart, and and all that kind of stuff. But the 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 really important things to the plot, like trying to figure out, you know, what the heck is a uh, a cocktail party at the reservoir and the sound of the bridge, like all that kind of stuff, are things that are simply he he knows notices them because he's f- more focused on sound it's not it's not like a superhero kind of a thing right. so it's uh it's it's handled i guess as, as well again i'm grading on a curve because sure. you know you've got one woman you've got one character with a disability and you know those two have to represent everybody you've got <laughs> one <there>.
4: african-american
2: <laughs> character yeah.
1: Yeah, right yeah, gets yeah. to be stern
4: in
0: one you scene get two
3: by the end but you that's know, true yeah main characters yeah same thing
0: You know, we spoke about this earlier and with the exception perhaps of Kingsley, I do think this is so well acted and something that I noticed, um, today more than ever before is that particularly Redford did so much more with his facial expressions than mm-hmm. I feel like almost anyone else ever has in the history of cinema. Like when he's <laughs> getting the instructions that I'd spoken about earlier, you're the, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, I'll try that. Like so many great facial expressions when when he gets the call uh, or the 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 message to, you know, go faster as he's plodding along in, in Cosmo's office. There's so many great facial facial expressions when he, there. When he
2: pistol whips Eddie Jones at the end, I love yep. that uh-huh. where he goes like, Ugh! And he hits him in the right, face right, right. with a gun.
0: So good. Like so much. And I, I, I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's Robert Friggin' Redford, but still it's so well done. I mean, he's not the only one. Like I, I do think David Strathairn or however you pronounce his name. I, I think he does a very good job of, of, being extremely likable and fun and goofy, and in a way that I, I just find so endearing. And every and Dan Aykroyd being the conspiracy theorist, you know, rather than the <laughs> yeah, the normal he's funny guy. Like, every himself, part that's so right, good. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> every, Dan, it's Dan Aykroyd so being likable
4: in a movie—it's so weird.
0: Yeah right, uh, but no, I don't. It's I feel like this entire cast does such an unbelievably good job, and it's it's such a a once in a lifetime kind of movie to me. In that everything, as we said in the beginning, everything just hits on pretty much every cylinder for the entire two hours, and it just makes me love it so darn much.
3: I, I often think to myself that I'm not really a big fan of Robert Redford. And I think that I watch this and I'm like, no, no, no. It's just I don't like most of the movies he's in. When he's in <laughs> the kind of movie I
1: like, he's amazing. Yes, he really is as good as people say. I also felt that way. But it's like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance yeah. Dance Kid. Um, the Sting. The sting. No thanks. Again, yeah. no thanks. Three Days oh. of the Condor. Oh. I still haven't seen that. <sighs> oh, it's
2: good. It's so it's good. good. So good.
3: Maybe I'd like him in that. Who knows?
2: I love him in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance
1: Kid. Mm-hmm. I love him so that's, much.
3: That's the era of movie making that I just do, I get, That's fair. I,
1: I, I understand, it, but he there's so many things he in is that so charismatic <laughs> and so good in that. And then yeah, Three Days of the Condor is like that too. It's just like that's three days of the condor is good good one. Good one. All the president's men too, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's actually kind of funny. He has not been in as many movies as you might think. Robert Redford. I's uh, he's more selective about what he uh what he's in. But uh he's great. Good he's for him. just he's great legitimately was great waiting it. for a good
4: uh, role in a marvel movie to come along yeah i like, brought him out <laughs> that's, you know that's the perfect
1: it's the perfect part for him though like that that yeah that because you want his, to love him so well much. yeah he's he is <laughs> he, they are taking advantage of the fact that it's robert redford and you're like oh yeah i believe you robert redford you're you're gonna be <laughs> good and he's not good so it's shocking but yes it's all it's all good um I agree. The cast, this is one of those movies that I'm just like, I cannot believe all these people are in this movie. It's just, it's such a great combination of people, and they all do a good job. And uh, um, the thing that really also, uh, it kind of bums you out when you think about it, but um, we're watching this movie many, many years later, and um, the only main character who's no longer with us is River Phoenix. River Phoenix. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Damn shame. Yeah but the rest of them are still uh, kicking.
2: He doesn't get as much to do in this movie, but I like him in all the scenes he's in. He gets a mm-hmm. couple really great, uh, the scene where he brings back the blueprints from the office and and uh, Robert Redford's commanding him, where'd you get the 50 bucks? <laughs> I took it out of mother's wallet. Uh, or the scene at the end where he jumps through the ceiling and
1: Robert Redford's mm-hmm. like, what were you waiting for? Yeah. Like,
3: that, was, that wasn't easy. I yeah.
1: know. <laughs> he's the kid. He's the kid, right? There's always, yes. you gotta have the kid yeah. in, the, in the group. I enjoy. I enjoy that uh,
4: in a movie involving hackers, he physically goes to a place and brings back paper blueprints. Like yep. in th- the world where everything wasn't online. Yeah, that's true. What that's a world good. that was.
1: All right. Well, I uh, am going to wrap it up then. But this has been uh, it's been great to talk about this long time coming. Uh, people haven't seen this movie or haven't seen it in a while, and you're still listening to this. Like, go oh, see this movie. It's a great movie. It's so much fun. It's. I wish again. It's one of those movies you watch and you think to yourself, Wow. Well, it's not that they don't make them like this anymore. It's like I wish they I wish they made more of these. Like cuz I don't think they made a lot of them back in the day either like but Mm -hmm. i I like i just really like this kind of thing and i I wish there were more that could fulfill me like sneakers does from 1992 let me thank my panelists for being here casey list thank you very much
0: the pleasure is mine thank you so much for having me
1: dan morin thank you we are the united states government we don't
2: do that sort of thing
1: (laughs) (laughs) erica ensign thank you this is my last computer date (laughs) <laughs> and uh john syracuse of my voice is my passport verify me this sure has been a beach lemon trip and thanks to everybody out there for listening to the incomparable we will see you next week